I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Evelina Gavashova, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cambridge. Evelina is developing machine learning models and mathematical models for cancer research. We talked about how to apply machine learning models in the medical field and the state of artificial intelligence. Evelina also gave an insight into the types of problems that are being tackled with machine learning and some of the implications on having access to medical data. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes, share with your friends, or send us a message by going to thewomenintechshow.com or tweet at techwomenshow. Evelina, welcome to the Women in Tech show. I'm so glad you were able to come on the show today. Uh, hello. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to begin talking about machine learning. One of the uses of machine learning has been to enable computers to do tasks that are trivial for humans. For example, recognizing objects, driving, understanding a language, and lately, We also interact with it more when we get recommendations on Netflix, social media. So it's clear it's become more important for us. And now we are seeing it being used in the medical field. So I'd like to ask you, as a postdoctoral researcher at the MRC Cancer Unit at the University of Cambridge, what are some of the problems that you're looking at solving with machine learning and mathematical models? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the thing is, uh, right now we have so much data and that's true not only in biology, but also in other domains. So that led to current growth in machine learning because right now we already have the data that we can use to train the models. And most of machine learning models require a lot of data. So. Over the next like 10, 15 years, there has been m massive growth in computational biology. And that's been enabled by sequencing of the human genome originally. And this is now growing. So now we have data on genomes of humans and other organisms. And we can actually start to look at them in ma on many different levels and examine like what patterns are there, how are they related to diseases and things like that. So basically the same algorithms that we can use, for example, to identify buying behavior of customers, we can use to identify subtypes of cancer, for example. Yeah. So machine learning and mathematical models are starting to become actually a good approach to answer questions, for example, in cancer research, just because we have all the data and based on that amount of data we can, you know, predict something with higher accuracy, right? Well, the thing is, we have so much data that it's impossible to look at them manually or to understand them if you just look at them. Because I, for example, work at the moment with genomic data, which means I have like a billion, like information on billions and billions of base pairs in the genome. And these are just A, D, C, and G. So it doesn't make any sense to even look at them manually. So I need to use mathematics to find patterns in that. And machine learning is great for this. Yeah. 
And when you're coming up with with a problem or stating a model, how do you decide what features to focus on? Because obviously there's a lot of data, like you mentioned. Wow, that's one of the big research questions, actually. Uh, because like in general, in machine learning, uh, usually you have your raw data and then you do uh, some feature selection or feature engineering to come up with like features of the data that give good predictive performance or that allow the model to perform better and to filter out the noise. And the problem with biological data is that we don't know that much about like, how different changes in the data affect uh, the actual organism. Mm -hmm. So uh, selecting the right features is a big problem, actually. Mm, okay. Yeah, because I was also wondering, there's the genome data, but there, there can also be data about the, the patient lifestyle, like the diet, the water sources, because some people get diseases based on the region they live at, so. Yeah, that's true, that's yeah. true. And that's also a problem with the data that we have at the moment, because mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, we have some patient data, uh, but it's very biased towards people who live in certain locations. And yeah. I think the, I think it's like a similar problem in psychology where most of the data they have are collected on college students. Mm -hmm. So it's always inherently biased in some way. Mm -hmm. And how accessible is this medical data? Like there's a lot of it. Is it easily available online or do you have to be within a research community? Mm, it depends on what type of data do you want to access. Because mm -hmm. some data, when it's already like summarized and anonymized, some of the data is available for download to anyone. But mm -hmm. once you can connect it to, for example, like information about the patient, meaning like yeah. uh, what type of disease that patient had, uh, how long that patient lived, probably if it was some aggressive cancer uh, and other features, then yeah. the data are anonymized, but still you for some of the data and for like the really raw data on patients and tumors, you really need to be a part of a research organization. Mm -hmm. But most of the data is available online in some way. Sometimes you need to go through some ethics approval committees and things like that, but it's oh, available, okay. which is great mm -hmm. because people are sharing the information. Yeah. And at a higher level, have you seen how efficient some of the AI methods have been compared to traditional approaches in medicine? For example, has it helped a patient avoid getting a treatment because the data shows that it's likely not going to be effective on this person or similar things? Um, these things are currently making their way into clinical practice, which, which is great, actually. Okay. Uh, for example, the, one of the best studied things is breast cancer. Yeah. And there's been a lot of research into this and there are different subtypes of breast cancer that behave mm -hmm. completely differently. But mm -hmm. yeah, the thing is there is a very long way from like mathematical model of the disease to actually yeah. being able to target different diseases with different methods. Yeah. Yeah, but there are, I think there are a couple of startups and some academic uh, research as well on how mm -hmm. to actually, for example, identify cancer cells from blood of a patient. Oh, uh, wow. 
to see if someone has a cancer or if a cancer is developing and things like that. And that's also yeah. using machine learning because you need to basically identify two different patterns or signals from yeah. one source. I see. And also in a, speaking of the same um, subject, in a recent interview with Mark Zuckerberg, this was yesterday, I think, he mentioned that there was an application that can detect from an image if there is skin cancer or not. And he said the accuracy is comparable to some of the best doctors. And because of this, this is empowering individuals because they'll have access to a good doctor, which would be a, a machine learning system. Um, oh, yeah. What? I haven't heard this interview, but yeah, there okay. has been some hype around this currently. And yeah. the thing is that uh, finally the deep learning methods are making their way into medicine as well. And yeah. the easiest way to apply them is to analyze images. So yes. this is where they will be applied first. And that's great because, well, the same system that labels data in Google, for example, uh, can yeah. be used to label medical images because it's basically the same task and the methods are yeah. there. So I think this will make its way into like actual practice quite soon, or at least really? I hope. Because there you are... Would say, yeah. okay. Because uh, this is just a diagnostic method and yeah. it's meant to help the clinicians and patients. And it's not actually, if it's not actually doing diagnosis, then yeah. you don't need clinical trials and things like that. So it's mm -hmm. much easier to put this into practice. And yeah. I assume in the beginning, it can basically just advise the doctor. It's not mm -hmm. actually making the diagnosis itself. The application, you mean? Yeah, yeah, the application. Yeah, because also Watson is working at hospitals, I think, IBM's Watson, mm -hmm. helping doctors um, with diagnosis. But yeah, in the end, like you mentioned, there's a person that makes the decision. Yeah, exactly. And when yeah. it's just about classifying image into two categories, like yeah. uh, healthy, not healthy, then it's a yeah. very simple task which is ideal for machine learning, to be honest. Yeah. What do you think we need to to do to have more systems like this? Is this because, like, in addition to images, do you see something else that, can, that could easily be in someone's phone to help diagnose something? Well, the images were the first thing because they are the easiest, mm -hmm. basically. And mm -hmm. the yeah. things we need to, like put machine learning into practice in this way are yeah. to have a lot of data, which we now have with images because I presume all the hospitals are collecting them. So uh, up till now, the, the images were just lying somewhere in a computer system. Yeah. And the other thing is we need labeled data, which means mm. uh, like the collection of images with labels, healthy, not healthy. Yeah. And then it's very easy to put together a machine learning system. Yeah. So definitely. I assume we can do something similar with blood samples because some results in some way are probably lying in some hospital systems with yeah. labels like this is uh, this disease, this is this, etc. Yes, definitely. So now I want to shift a little bit and talk about a talk you gave 
oh, a while okay. ago. <laughs> yeah, it, it was titled How Machine Learning Helps in Cancer Research. And one of the things that I like that we talked about earlier is that at some point you start talking about the Netflix prize challenge, which, which was a competition that Netflix did for for the best collaborative filtering algorithm to predict user ratings. Yes. And af after you explain this, you you state the problems, the variables, the people involved, like the user and then the, the rating itself. And you mentioned this same problem can be rephrased and be seen in cancer research. And I also noticed this is something that you do a lot. You have projects about AI concepts applied in literature, Star Wars, Twitter. <laughs> do you do projects like this as an inspiration? And then you think of a way in which you can apply it with medical variables, or is it mostly for fun? Or what's the story behind these projects that you do? Well, for some of these projects, uh, yeah, it's mm -hmm. true. I give a lot of talks where I usually apply some machine learning algorithms to some fun or engaging data sets. And yeah. it's usually either these are algorithms that I'm already using at work in practice on like biomedical data oh, and okay. just applying them to something else is firstly, it's a way how to get feeling for how the algorithm behaves. Oh, I see. Because sometimes also, yeah. on the biomedical data, you can't really see what's happening there because like, I am not a biologist in any way. So whenever okay. like I get some results and I say, okay, so these two genes come up in my analysis, I'm not mm -hmm. actually sure if it makes sense or not from the biological perspective. So then mm -hmm. I have to go and ask someone, etc. cetera. So mm -hmm. applying the same algorithms to something fun and interpretable uh, it's it gives you a feeling for how the method behaves and what results you can expect. Okay, so it's actually the opposite. You already apply it in the medical field, and you're <laughs> yeah. Oh, or okay. I thought it was the other way. Or uh, from the other perspective, it's also a way for me to explore other algorithms that I'm not currently working with to see yeah. if I could potentially use them on something. Yeah, because in school, this is mostly what I learned when we talked about AI and machine learning. It was the Netflix prize, uh, CAPTCHAs. It was rarely talked about, you know, classifying uh, images for cancer or more uh, impactful cases, I think, where lives are involved. Yeah, it was yeah. always like recommending systems and... Well, these are the traditional ways to apply these algorithms. Okay. And machine learning is making its way into like biomedical research like, quite recently, actually. Yeah. So um, we're seeing a bigger shift, like we talked about, to use the data and the qualitative feedback to find what problems to solve, to identify the problems, propose solutions, hopefully. Uh, this, of course, like we talked about, varies from field to field. For example, the data from social networks is less sensitive than medical data. Do you think it would be good to aggressively have more widely available data sets of medical data? Mm -hmm. oh. Is it risky? For example, the Netflix prize, they released the data and then somebody de-anonymized it. Well, the problem is that these data are very, very, very hard to de-anonymize. De 
and mm. because it's data on patients, on what disease they have, on things like yeah. that. And this is very sensitive data, not only okay. to the people, but to insurance companies, to employers, things like that. Yeah. And it can have like very big consequences. So there is, it's much more risky to like release data like that. But mm -hmm. another type of data that I work with quite a lot is actually like animal data on mice and etc. Uh, mm, yeah. and that is freely available for download. And oh, okay. there is a lot of research going on on mice, uh, especially in the biomedical field. And yeah, yeah these data are much easier mm. to get and much easier to get a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So people use that for a lot of research. And then the problem oh. is that some of the findings don't really translate very well to humans. Well, that's a oh, very big problem in pharmaceutical industry in general. Yeah, but some of it can, so at least... Yeah, if it's like yeah. general patterns and things like that, and uh, common biological pathways, then they translate very well. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's about some other genes or some minor pathways, then there are problems. Mm -hmm. What are some of the consequences? You mentioned some, some consequences of aggressively making it available uh, what are some of the downside the main downsides that you can think of well the main is downside like is anonymity of patients yeah. which must be preserved uh, yeah. but at the moment there are big research centers that have access to a lot of patient data mm -hmm. and well uh, for example 23andme uh, have you heard about them it sounds familiar, but not off the top of my head. Uh, it's a company that provides genotyping as a service. You basically send them your saliva sample. Oh, and yeah. They yeah. give you like a lot of information on your risk factors and uh, your yeah. likelihood of getting certain diseases, etc. And on your genetic yeah. tree, etc. So... Uh, Recently, I think a couple of months ago, there was uh, some research done on some specific disease that usually has very severe consequences if you have certain genetic mutation. And mm -hmm. in the 23andMe dataset, they identified five people who have that mutation but didn't have any bad effects from the mutation, which um. for the researchers was like a miracle. Wow. And then the problem is that the people signed that they don't want to be contacted by researchers. So now we know that there is some way how to avoid effects of a very bad mutation, but we have no idea why, because the people don't want to be contacted. Oh, wow. But at least this, this says there's people out there. You just have to find other people. Yeah. So oh, this is another thing, like you can have the data available online and for other people to examine, etc. But sometimes yeah. it doesn't give you the whole picture. Yeah, because the, the patient in the end decides, Yeah, can you use and my the, data or not? And it's very sensitive data, so yeah, yeah the responsibility arises with the patient. Yeah. So last question, what do you see happening in the next five and ten years in machine learning and AI in general in the medical field? No. Oh, well, that's very hard to predict. 
But I mm -hmm. think it will be much more common in diagnosis. It will make its way into clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we will move a bit more into like targeted medicine or precision medicine, as it was called, uh, mm -hmm. where you come to a doctor, they take their blood sample, etc., or tissue sample, and then they yeah. will be able to precisely tell, okay, you have this variant of this disease. So mm -hmm. this common medicine won't work for you, but this one will. Yeah, definitely. Because it usually works where they give you a medicine. Let's see if this is going to work. Yeah. And let's and try this other one. And yeah. But I there see. will be a lot of research involved in this. So it, yeah. we are not there yet. Definitely. Oh. For example, okay. in my work, I usually like, identify some patterns. Right now I'm working on data on pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And even if I identify something, it's still basic research. So uh, it might make something, if uh, some of my like results are important, they might make their way into practice in 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. Are you working on diagnosing? the cancer, the pancreatic cancer? Um, I'm working on basically looking at how different subtypes of pancreatic cancer behave and how do they differentiate. Oh, okay, I see. That's pretty interesting. Um, well, Evelina, thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed having this conversation with you. Oh, thank you. It was a nice conversation. Thank you. Thank you.